Reminds me of Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. You remember the young character, old Tommy? He's asked in Sunday school, what are the two, name two disciples of Jesus. And he said, well, easy, David and Goliath. So these are familiar stories. And sadly, at times, familiarity, uh, well, you know the line. And there's a danger when we get to this scene, the life of David, that is David and Goliath, that we can strip it from its context. And so today we're going to put on some fresh lens to a story that we know all so well and careful to look at the context because 1 Samuel 17, if you would turn there, 1 Samuel 17 fits with 1 Samuel 16 and it goes all the way to 2 Samuel 5. And what we're trying to show, at least the, the author's trying to show us, is that David is the legitimate ruler the replacement for King Saul. And that this one whom God has chosen for himself, it's because he has a heart for him. And that's the vast difference. So as you turn to 1 Samuel 17, that's the text we're in. If you've joined us this week, we are going through the life of David. And we're at this very, this epic battle nestled in the Old Testament. Before we get there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. The richness of it, we can travel through a text time and time again, and yet there's always something that's fresh and new. And this morning, Lord, as we go to this text, Lord, may we not miss the context and exactly what's going on. And it's so easy to immediately jump and spiritualize it to battles of our day and so forth and miss what the author is trying to convey through the power of the Spirit. So, Father, guide us as we go to the text today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle your seatbelts. It's a good thing it's raining, so we can be here all day. We're going to start in verse 1. <laughs> The Philistines gathered, and if you heard that term, you immediately should go, boo. The Philistines are the arch enemies of the Israelites in the Old Testament. They are the sea peoples, most likely, that settled on the Mediterranean coast. They had a five-city confederation, uh, an empire, so to speak, uh, loosely empire, and we're going to see this group, Philistines are mentioned 35 times in this chapter alone. It's key. It says, they've gathered their troops for battle. They assembled at Sokoth in Judah. They camped in, and we see here this town, between Sokoth and Azekah. And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, where they arranged their battle lines to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and on the, other, the Israelites on the other, and there was a valley in between. Then a champion came out from the camp of the Philistines. He's never referred to as a giant, so keep that in mind as we go through the text. He's called a champion. He's a great warrior. He is a force to reckon with. It says his name was Goliath. He was from Gath. That's one of the five cities within the Philistine Confederation. He was close to seven feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was wearing scale body armor. The, the weight of the bronze body armor was 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. He had bronze shin guards on his legs. A bronze javelin was slung over his shoulders. A shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the iron point of the, of the spear weighed 600 pounds, approximately 15 
uh, uh, sorry, 600 shekels, 15 pounds, and his shield bearer was walking before him. Goliath stood and called to Israel's troops, Why do you come out to prepare for battle? Am I not the Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose for yourselves a man so that he may come down to me. This was a common practice in the Near Eastern world. You send your best warrior, I send out our best warrior, and the one who wins, that determines the whole uh, the battle. And so he says, if he's able to fight with me and strike me down, we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, you will become our servants and you will serve us. The Philistine said, I defy Israel's troops this day. Give me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul, don't miss that, and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistines, they were upset and they were very afraid. As we mentioned, the Philistines are mentioned over nearly, well, almost 35 times in this text. They're key. And we're not out of the first few verses, and you'll notice there's a numerous geographical locations given. I love this. <clears throat> the Bible isn't some fairy tale. These are real people, real events, real places. And I love taking people to Israel and showing them, this is the spot. I've literally had grown men cry at locations saying, I thought this was all a myth. No, this is not a myth. We could, we could take you to these locations. I'm going to show you some photos here in a minute. In fact, by the end of the 54 verses, we're going to see 20 specific geographical locations given in the text. Places in the narrative, I know they're sometimes hard to pronounce, should never be glanced over lightly. In fact, when you're reading through the Old Testament, especially the historical books, let me encourage you, get out a Bible atlas. Follow the spots. It's key. It takes the, the text from black and white and puts it into technicolor. But geography is very important. There are literary elements that are being used to color the text for us. One scholar writes, the biblical authors employ geography as a tool to shape the plot, develop the characterization, color the storyline, and provide emphasis. The battle scene is occurring in the Elah Valley. Let me show you a couple maps. And I'm sorry, this is hard to read those that have the uh, frozen chosen seats up at the top. But you'll see these red lines and, and you're moving from the coast, that's the Mediterranean that's on the far left, and moving down to the Dead Sea. The coastal plain is flat. The next is called the Shephelah. This is key. This is where our battle's taking place. It's strategic land because the next is the Judean plain, plateau or the Judean hills. This is the mountains. In other words, this is the buffer zone. If the Philistines can get through this region, that is the Shephelah, they will reach the Judean cities. <laughs> and the only way, well, the best way, from the coastal plain up to the Judean hills are those blue lines, which are streams or valleys. There's a series of them. And most of the Old Testament, well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of the historical accounts in the Old Testament occur in those valleys. You'll see the yellow is the Elah Valley. It is an eight-mile track. At one end of the Elah Valley is Gath. Who's from Gath? Goliath. The other end of the Elah Valley will take us up to Bethlehem. Again, this is why it's so strategic. The Philistines in a day could march up the Elah Valley and be at the doorstep of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. 
This is so significant if we understand this. Now let me show you this. This is beautiful. Now we're standing on the north, looking down across into the south. But you see the valley. That's the Elah Valley. On the south side are where the Philistines are camped. And on the north side is where the Israelites are camped. Uh, this diagram does a little bit better job. Again, it's flipped this time. Now we have the north and you see the Israelites are camped up at the top. The Philistines are across the valley in the other way and you've got the two towns. Again, Gath is to your left and way up to the right is Bethlehem. It's strategic. If Saul does not stop the Philistines at this point, he is in deep trouble and he knows it. What's more significant with the valleys, this is your bread basket. The picture I showed you earlier, even today, there is a ton of agriculture that goes on in, in these valleys. <laughs> they need this. You lose this, you don't have, this is your bread basket. You lose the shephelah. It's strategic. Later, David will build a fortress on the Elah Valley. And even today, I can take you to the ruins, Kerbet Kaiapha, which is on the north side of the Elah Valley. It's probably where David met Saul. X marks the spot. Oh, that was exciting, but we got to get back to the text. All right. So we got the where and we got the why that's laid out here for us, but let's look at the who. In one corner of the ring is Goliath, the champion. Now, I want you to see three things that Goliath has he has unbelievable stature, which we're going to see, he has unbelievable resources, and he has unbelievable experience. Let's look at the text. First, we see here that this champion comes out. Now, the, the Net Bible translates this seven feet tall. If you have the King James or the NIV, it says it's nine foot plus. There's a lot of debate here among scholars. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this. So we're just going to say, why would you say that it's seven foot? More recent, earlier Hebrew manuscripts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, mentions that Goliath is seven foot. There's a, there's a variant, what we call a textual variant here. And the most critical, the way we could explain, the best explanation would be that it's been altered to nine because of a, a, a scribal error. And we don't have the time to go into that. The, the story never refers to Goliath as a giant. So keep that in mind. In fact, when Saul says to David, you're going to go fight Goliath? Are you crazy? He doesn't talk about Goliath's height. He talks about his military prowess. Goliath is a force. So we'll get to that text in a minute. And finally, and this is key to the story. Now, I'm not trying to deny the supernatural here. I mean, David going against Goliath is like taking a water pistol to a Sherman tank. Right? I mean, Goliath has got it all together. We'll get to his resources in a minute. But he's still tall because the average height of, a, of an Israelite male in the first century is five foot three. David is probably five. So he's two foot under the size of Goliath. Who was the tallest in the land at this time among the Israelites? Saul. Saul was the one to, who should have done battle with Goliath. He was the natural choice. See the story? We're developing it already at this point. Saul should have been the one who was ahead above everyone in the land, probably around six foot, should have went to battle with Goliath, but he does not. It's key. One scholar talks about this and he says, this, the shepherd boy battling a seasoned warrior such as Goliath, this is huge. The, the idea that he's going against this one. 
And I know we translate a giant. In many ways, he still is. I mean, he'd be a great candidate for your basketball team. There's no doubt. He's not as, you know, he's still tall. And in that day, extremely tall. His resources, notice his resources. We are told of five things. How many stones did David pick up? Five. He has five. Goliath has five weapons before him or pieces of armor. First, we see the bronze helmet. Matter of fact, I thought you would love this. This is a Mycenaean piece of pottery from this time frame. It's also from the Sea People area where the Philistines, so they probably appeared as this. It gives you an idea of how Goliath might have appeared when he went to battle. A bronze helmet, the scale body armor, which we're told here in the text is about 125 pounds that he's wearing. He has bronze shin guards. He's, it says he has a javelin that's behind his shoulder blades that could also be a curved flat sword that he has instead. The, the, the Hebrew is a little unclear here, but he's got a weapon behind his shoulders that he can whip out quickly. He also has a spear, which we're told is extremely heavy. The point of it is made of iron weighing 15 pounds. This is huge. And then notice what the text tells us. Don't miss this. He's not alone. His shield bearer at the end of verse 7 was walking before him. That shield would have been the size of a man. So we're talking, again, a Sherman tank going forward that, that David is to do battle with, that, that, that we're entering in here. Saul has unbelievable stature. He's got unbelievable resources laid at his feet. I mean, <laughs> he's got the latest, the most sophisticated, the baddest weapons that you could have. Baddest, I use in quotes. But also, he's got unbelievable experience. Look, I know we're not there yet, but look at verse 33. You have to see this. Saul replied to David, you aren't going to go against this Philistine. You've got to be kidding. You're just a boy. He has been a warrior from youth. He's got unbelievable experience. By the way, who else has experience in this dialogue, Saul? You're the one who beat the Ammons, Ammonites earlier in chapter 11. <laughs> You should be doing this. You should be leading the people. You have failed politically your people and you are failing them spiritually. You see, here's the problem. What does Saul say? Look what Saul says to the Israelites. Don't miss this in verse 8. Why do you come to prepare for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? No, they're the servants of the Lord. Not Saul. There's a cosmic, there is a spiritual theological battle that's taking place. This is just a backdrop to something far more significant. And both Goliath and David know this. Later, Goliath will state, when David comes out, notice what he says to him. Go to verse 46. David says, you know, I've come out. Uh, no, excuse me, verse 44. The Philistine said to David, come here so I can give your flesh I curse you, he says in verse 43, by your gods. In a Near Eastern world, this is a battle ultimately between our gods and your gods. And for the Philistines, it's Dagon. And we know what happened to Dagon in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. If you remember the story, the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. It's captured by the Philistines. And what happens to Dagon? He falls head first. His head is chopped off. Sound familiar? 
the similarities are huge. But Goliath understands this is a battle between our gods. And so thus the threat, one scholar writes of the giant, Goliath, was far more than an overgrown, overdressed, belligerent local <laughs> louse of a menace to the neighbors. No, this is a battle between the gods, entirely theological in its framing. And this is why Saul should have been the one to fight Goliath. The first principle in your notes as we look at this text is failure to live by faith precedes paralyzing fear and obscures the reality of God's presence, promises, and power. And that is the problem. First indictment is against Saul. So we see who's in the ring in that corner. Now let's go to the other corner, and that's David. Let's look at the text. Notice what the text says. Now David was the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse from Bethlehem in Judah. He had eight sons. It's interesting, it says Saul's days, he was old, or, uh, old and well advanced in years. And I would suspect Jesse is as well. I mean, he has eight boys. David's the youngest. You get the idea here. And it's interesting, we rehearse the names. This should immediately draw your attention back to 1 Samuel 16. And that was, oh, that's right. <laughs> David is the anointed one. He's the one that God has chosen. And, and so it sets us up as we go into the text. Verse 16, look at this. Meanwhile, for 40 days, the Philistines approached every morning and evening and took his position. In other words, 80 times Goliath has gone, nana, 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 right? Come battle me. Let's do it. Jesse said to his son David, take your brothers, and he sends them with food. And I love this. Find out how your brothers are doing there in verse 18. They are with Saul and the whole Israelite army in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David had no idea what was going on until his dad told him. Now, what does David do? He gets up, not late, but early. Early in the morning, and he's entrusted the flock to someone else who would watch over. I mean, just look at the responsibility, the, the discipline of this young man. And after loading up, he went, just as Jesse had instructed him, he arrived at the camp of the army as going out to battle lines, shouting its battle cries. David had entrusted his cargo to the care of the supply officer. He ran to the battlefront. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were doing. As he was speaking with them, here comes Goliath's cry again, right? Crying out, the Philistine from Gath was coming up from the battle lines, the Philistines. When David heard it, and all the men Israel saw this, they retreated from his presence. And again, we're told, they were very afraid. You, you get this scene here. Uh, David, David doesn't have any stature, resources, or experience like Saul. There's this huge dichotomy between these two individuals. And so David comes in, he sees this, and the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man? <laughs> How could you miss him? As he stands there on the, the floor of the valley in between the two hills, shouting up at the Israelites with his shield bearer there. No one would dare go against him. And Saul even entices by giving a bribe to the soldier who goes. And David says in verse 26, he asked the men who were standing there, what will be done for the man who strikes? I mean, what are you saying? Why would there be a reward for taking a stand and doing what is right? 
I think that's what's going on here. And notice what David says. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that, now watch this, that he defies the armies of the living God. Wow. Dagon's not alive. He's a dead God that the Philistines worship. Our God is alive. And this text, or that phrase will be repeated twice in, the, in this scene. The soldiers told him what he had promised, saying this is what will be done. And then when David's oldest brother Eliab heard him speaking to the men, he became angry. <laughs> the first attack against David is not an uncircumcised Philistine. It's his own brother. His brother who was there at the anointing of 1 Samuel 16. This is unbelievable. Watch what happens. Why do you come down here? To whom did you entrust those few sheep in the wilderness? I hope you're catching this. But this is more than just sibling rivalry. Hang into your, just hang on here a minute. I'm familiar with your pride and deceit. You've come down here to watch the battle. David replied, what have I done now? Can I say anything? He turned from those who were nearby to someone else and asked the same question. They gave him the same answer as before. Then David's words were overheard and repeated to Saul. Let's unpack this because it's so vital. David arrives early in the morning. It would have been a 12-mile track from Bethlehem down to the north quadrant, north side of the Elah Valley where the Israelites are encamped. And David is seeking clarity on what in the world is going on here. And he understands God's reputation is at stake here. David understands the full battle. You know, the irony is Dagon, the god of the Philistines, the primary god, was known as the father of the gods. He was also known as the creator. And David goes, he's dead. We serve a living God who is the creator, who is the sovereign one. You, 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 you can't do this. And any time you take a stand for the Lord, beware. <laughs> beware. And sometimes you think the enemy's going to shoot and the arrow comes from beside you. And some of you are shaking your heads. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Elab attacks David's motives and he proceeds to humiliate David in front of all those standing there. Remember, this is David's oldest brother. My dad is a, had six siblings. In many ways, his oldest, my dad was the youngest, the oldest was like his dad because they were closer in age. And I have a feeling it's the same case here. Elab, in many ways, was like David's dad. He looked up to Elab. I mean, he brought him the food. He was excited to see him. Elab is projecting his own comings and guilt onto David. Is he not? Who? Well, we go back to 1 Samuel 16. Remember Elab? He too was tall in stature. If Saul's not going to fight Goliath, Elab, you're next in line. You should offer to, to fight. But oh no, you've cowered with the rest of the Israelites in this battle. All you can see is Goliath. You, you've missed God in, the, in this picture. One commentator writes, his hostility, Elab's hostility to David, was more than sibling rivalry. It was nothing less than opposition to God's chosen one and therefore to the living God himself. Elab had unwittingly taken 
Goliath's side. Wow. It's so interesting. We, We miss this in this so familiar scene. And it's ironic. Elam says he knows David's heart and it's evil. Wow. Because that's sure a contrast to what the Lord said about David's heart back in 1 Samuel 16. Are you playing God, Elam? No. Careful. I love David. He doesn't even give a response. He refuses to divulge his intentions to his older brother. In fact, you could render this more of his response. The Net Bible takes it more of, you know, what, what are you doing? Leave me alone. It could be rendered in a sense of, you're wasting my time. We've got to get this job done. <laughs> it is it's a huge rebuke. David spares no expense. One of Satan's greatest tools is to have close family or friends undermine, question, or try to deter the Lord's work. It's a dangerous place to be careful that you're not in those shoes, attacking family or friends. It's a case for Elam. Thankfully, David is not deterred. Why? Because he's there to preserve God's reputation, not his own or his family. That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus said in Mark 10, I tell you the truth, there's no one left uh, who's left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, fields, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, and on in the age to come in eternal life. The Lord will reward those who are faithful. We are to die to self. <laughs> it's a powerful scene here nestled in this. Well, I love it. Watch Saul's response. Talk about a louse. So, verse 32, David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged. Your servant will go and fight. I love that. He says, your servant. You'll go and fight the Philistines. And Saul said, you've got to be kidding. You're a boy. It's the same thing Goliath will say to him. You're a boy. You're a five foot. Acne's all over you. You've got to be kidding. You come fight me? That's what Goliath says. We'll get to that. David replied to Saul, your servant has been a shepherd for his father's flock. That is loaded, by the way, because the king of Israel was to be a shepherd of the people. David is faithful with little bobos, and he's going to be faithful with God's bobos. That is the Israelites. And this whole scene goes on, and David shares how he defeated a bear and a lion. I mean, good grief. And David went on to say the Lord who... Del- By the way, the term there is, is the first time it appears of a covenantal title for God. This is the one who's made a covenant with us. The Lord who delivered me from the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul says to David, go, the Lord will be with you. Principle, second principle in your notes, glorifying the Lord and his reputation must be the chief aim of all people. David, one commentator writes, it's quite a speech here, verses 34 through 37. It's quite a young boy. It's quite a faith. Nothing is found like it in all of Israel. That's David. Don't underestimate underestimate our young people. Because you see that here. The narrative of 1 Samuel 17 is about situations where God's name is at stake. Where his reputation is on the line. And that's true at work, in academic environments, in ministry, in missions. When you think about it, it really means every situation 
big or small, every facet of the human life, God's glory must be preeminent. Does not everything fall into the realm of the sacred? Yes. Even Goliath understood that. And we, must, we have to be careful that we don't trivialize the events of life that come when, it talks, when it's dealing with God's name, his reputation, and his glory. So David pontific, I mean, he, he lays it out. It's like, whoa, yay. And what does Saul do? He gives some spiritual cliche. I mean, you just want to smack him upside the head. You know, God be with you. Thanks, Saul. I mean, you don't miss this. It's, it, you're, you got to chuckle in the midst of it. And I mean, really, Saul? There's no recognition that I, Saul, have failed to lead the people? You're right, David. Yes, I know. This isn't right. I need to get right with the Lord, and, and I need to go out there and fight God. No, you don't see any of this. The Lord be with you. That's nice. In fact, Saul says, but you know what? I'll give you my armor. And it looks a lot like Saul's, or uh, Goliath's, does it not? The helmet, the shit. You're going, yeah, because what did the people want? They wanted a king like the other nations, and that's exactly what they've gotten. <laughs> he looks just like the rest of them with all this armor. And I love David. He goes, you got to be kidding. You know, I, I'm not a size uh, 38 waist. I'm... I don't know, he's probably 22. Who knows? I don't know. Size, uh, look at verse 40. He took the staff in his hand. He picked out the five. So he, he lays the, the armor down at Saul. He says, I can't do this. He takes up his own staff. He picks up five smooth stones from the stream and he places them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. Took his sling in the hand and approached the Philistine. I mean, there is no wavering here. I just love it. Here he goes. <laughs> And Elab is sitting there. You got to be kidding, right? I'm sure he's saying, I was trying to protect David. You can just hear it. Oh, well. The Philistine with his shield bearer walking in front of him kept coming closer to David. And when the Philistine looked carefully at David, <clears throat> he despised him for he was only Rudy and handsome boy. We saw that before. The Philistine asked David, am I a dog? That you're coming to me with a sticks? I mean, it's a playoff of his staff. I mean, are you going to play fetch with me? What, what do you think I am? Then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. There it is. Then the Philistine said to David, come here so I can give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the field. I mean, it's a sign of judgment. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Now watch David's response. You know, I just love it. David says to the Philistine, you're coming against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of the heavenly hosts, the God of Israel's armies whom you have defied. He gives three weapons that Goliath has. David gives three weapons he has, and they're all centered on the Lord. This very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head this day. Now watch this, because Goliath didn't mention the Israelites. He just said to, to David, you're going to die. And I love David's response. You're not only going to die, Goliath. We're also going to take out your entire army, because they're going to be corpses. That's the text that it says here, right? The birds, the sky, the wild animals, the land. Then all the land will realize, and I love this, this is where the music's starting here in the text. Don't miss this. They have a God, and it's, you, it is our God, 
And all the assembly will know it is not us by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will deliver you into our hand. Wow. What, what a statement. What is David saying? Look at verses 45 through 47. David says to Goliath, number one, the Lord goes before me. I am not afraid of you. What a statement. Secondly, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He says that in verse 46, and David repeats it in verse 47. He's that sure of it. I'm not afraid of you because the Lord goes before me. Secondly, you're going to be delivered into my hand. And third, the Lord is going to judge you, Goliath. (laughs) I mean... He says, you have defied, you, Goliath, have defied God himself. It's interesting. Goliath is referred to as a reproach earlier in the text. In fact, this reproach that's going to be removed is mentioned in verse 26 when David says, he's going to be removed, this reproach that is referred to Goliath. It's the same verb used later when David takes off the head. He says, it's been removed. It's been complete. You come against God, you're going to face the consequences. David is a man after God's own heart. David understands his relationship with the Lord. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes. It says, when people learn to rely not on their own power and wisdom, but depend on God, there is no limit to their usefulness in God's service. That's true. David isn't scared of anything. I mean, it's, he's willing to trust. He's willing to seek God's glory in all of this. Now, I know you're dying to know what happens. We've waited 47 verses. So let's get to verse 48. It says, The Philistine drew steadily closer to David to attack him, while David quickly ran towards the battle line to attack the Philistine. David reached his hand into the bag and took out a stone. He slung it, striking the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank deeply into his forehead, and he fell down with his face to the ground. Can you imagine? There is a gasp on both sides of the Elah Valley. <laughs> and the shield, the guy carrying the shield, he's long gone. He's nowhere to be found later in this text. David prevailed over the Philistines with just the sling and his stone. He struck down the Philistines and killed them. He did not even have a sword. What did he tell Goliath earlier in verse 47? Know that it's not by sword or spear that I'm going to take you out. The text is reminding us, no, no, no. There was no sword But David ran, he grabs Goliath's sword, he drew it, and after killing him, he cut off his head. And it says, they saw the Philistines see this, and they start running. In fact, they run so far, it would take you 30 minutes by car to get to Ekron. They run to Ekron, the text tells us, and they run to Gath. They're trying to find places of refuge, and they run two different directions down the Elah Valley. Up one goes way up into the next valley. One is down the bottom of the Elah Valley. And the Philistines are killed all along the way. And David takes the head of the Philistine and he brings it to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem will not become the capital for David until 2 Samuel 5. But this is a foreshadowing. It, it lets you know where we're headed. And, the key, and it says he took Goliath's weapons in his tent, which is a very symbolic in the Near Eastern world. I am the victor. These are mine. I have done this. And, and they serve as true. For David, to me, they serve as 
symbols, a reminder that God is faithful. And God, this was God's battle. David's sling was not one of those Y-shaped, you know, with a rubber band and woo, you know. Uh, no. In fact, I will show you a photo. This is a Syrian relief, so it's much later, but you can see, I've tried to blow it up to the far right. Uh, this is two straps, and they, would, and they would sling it either to the side or over their head, and then let one strap go, and away the stone would go. We know in Judges 20, there were 700 left-handed Benjaminites who could sling a stone at a piece of hair and not miss it. You say, oh, well, that's embellished, isn't it, David? Livy, first century BC, states that the Greek slingers would not merely hit the heads of their enemy, but they could detect on which part of the face they wanted the stone to hit. This will even further rock your mind. We know from records that the normal target was 200 yards away that they could hit. But if they were really good, 400 yards. And the record today, modern record, is 550 yards. That is a long way. Even 200. That's two football fields. <laughs> Poor Goliath. He had no idea what was coming. Celsus, a Roman medical author from the first century, wrote that wounds from slings were more dangerous than wounds from arrows because of the internal damage caused by the blunt force. And Titan Hirsch, a ballistic expert with the Israel Defense Force, IDF, in a recent study of calculation showed that that stone normally flies at a speed of almost 80 miles per hour. Yeah, he might be a little kid. He knows how to... Use a sling. And the Lord used that. No sword, but he takes him out. You know what the sad part is? Did you see what happened to the Philistines? What did Goliath say? If I win, you're our servants. If you win, we're your servants. What did the Philistines do? They scurried like light on cockroaches. They didn't stay around to be servants. They couldn't keep their word. And this is case in point. These are not fears of God. Goliath possessed stature, resources, and experience. However, he paled in comparison to what David possessed. What was his stature? A heart for God. <laughs> what was his resources? The name of God. And what was his experience? The deliverance of God. Time and time again, David said, I have seen God work. I know who my God is, and I know he will deliver. Wow. With this comparison, and in the context of 1 Samuel, it is very clear what's happening. David is stepping up to the plate, which should have been Saul's role in, in protecting or exalting God's glory, preserving God's glory. Saul blew it. David was willing to take the stand. And in so doing, he protected God's people. And that's the crux of this whole experience. It was Yahweh who was fighting through David, who gave the enemies into his hand and who protected him. God did not deliver Goliath into his hand he did, but without a sword. And that leads us to the third principle here as we look at this text. 
Spiritual victories are obtained in possessing a heart for God. You're in the battles, and we want to be careful spiritualizing here this text, but the New Testament talks about spiritual battles we're in as followers of Jesus. The Lord, first and foremost, is looking for a heart that's clinging fast and hard after him, that's exercising faith in the name of the Lord and recognizing past deliverances, saying, yeah, I, I could trust you because of this. I mean, Psalm 13, the psalmist is almost borderline blasphemous. Where are you, O Lord, in all of this? I, I can't see the end of the tunnel. And what does he say? Is he, he gets later in the psalm and he says, you know what? But I, I can trust you because I know I've seen your hand in the past. I don't understand the future, but I know who you are. That's James. When we face trials and temptations, what do we do? We go to the Lord. We don't doubt who God is. We might doubt how God is going to operate, but we don't doubt who God is. To doubt who God is, is to align, malign his character. Psalm 18, indeed with your help I can charge against an army. He is a shield to all who take shelter in him. Indeed, who is God besides the Lord? Who is a protector besides our God? The one true God gives me strength. He removes the obstacles in my way. 1 Samuel 17 is a beautiful picture of Psalm 18. Amy Carmichael, one of my heroes of the faith. She was a missionary to India from the late 1800s to 1950s. She served as overseeing an orphanage for 55 years. And she writes these words, listen to this. Thank God for the battle verses in the Bible. We go into the unknown every day of our lives and especially every Monday morning for the week is sure to be a battlefield. And some of you have had it this past week. <laughs> it's been a rough one. For others, it's still looming into next week. Outwardly and inwardly in the unseen life of the spirit, which is often by far the sternest battlefield for our souls. Either way, the Lord your God goes before you. He shall fight for you. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in the side. And I love that the scripture never clarifies what it is because we can all relate. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, but he said to me, that's what Paul's saying, the Lord says to me, my grace is enough for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What greater example than David? Stature? Resources, experience, they paled in comparison, humanly speaking, to what Goliath possessed. But ah, uh, not spiritually. Because he comes as a heart for God, he has the name of the Lord, and he has seen the Lord's hand. And so this morning, 1 Samuel 17, it's loaded. We could have spent three sermons on it and not exhausted this beautiful scene. What God can do in and through a man or a woman who possesses a heart for God, an individual willing to exercise faith in the name of God and seek his glory, <laughs> look out. Because the Goliaths, they're going to keep coming down. Because our God is a mighty warrior who goes before us. Father, what a rich scene here in the Old Testament. It's a reminder that what you seek is for your glory to be preserved, to carry forth on the earth.
You don't need us to do that, but you seem fit as your people to lift high that banner. And Lord, I confess, we as times want to lower the banner. We want to hide behind the banner, yes, but, <laughs> but we want to, it's so easy to get sidetracked, to, to, to grow fearful. When the enemy's shouting from the valley up, who looks so huge, we forget, no, 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 you go before us. David is a reminder of this, but also in this scene, it's a testimony as 1 Samuel's being laid out, your hand upon David, a man who's after your own heart. And how you moved to preserve the Israelite people through a little shepherd boy. We stand in awe of your grace and your power, and we thank you in Jesus' name.